Erev Tov, good evening. We are continuing our study in the Rambam of the Anshei Knesta Gedola, the men of the Great Assembly. We've discussed so far a number of different takanot of institutions that Israel has bedin had made in order to bring the Torah into a realm that would be much more accessible to the people. We mentioned bringing the Torah in general to the public realm by enactment of prayer, prayers and blessings. So, Borachot, Tfilah, institutions that our rabbis made so that Am Yisrael would decentralize its service from the Ben Mikdash and become active in their Avodat Hashem through personal tefillah and blessings. Another takana we mentioned by Jacob Nadolah is the enactment of the reading of the Torah. So, making the Torah something that is read publicly. We discussed the, the, the Kohanim and their protection, their misguided protection of the Torah, which ultimately causes the people to become disconnected from the Torah. If you really keep something a secret and you keep it to yourself, then ultimately what's going to happen are the people themselves are going to lose access to the Torah, and that is exactly what happened here. Today we're going to discuss something a lot more drastic, and something that has been a discussion among Chachamim since this piece of Talmud was taught to us by Chachamim Israel. I want to read to you a Gemara. It's found on page 11 of the PDF that I handed out to you. So if you go to whatever Google Classroom you're in, uh, the Zoom invitation that I sent out should have a PDF at the bottom called Anshek Knesset HaGidolat. Baruch Atah Adonai. Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Shakol Niyamdor. Amen. That was such a beautiful Amen. Thank you. In Masechet Sanhedrin, page 21b, Amar Marzutra Vitema Marukva. Marzutra says, and some say Marukva who says, Bitchila, initially, in the beginning, Nitena Torah Israel Bichtav Ivri. The Torah was given to the Jewish people in Ivri, in Hebrew script. Vlashona Kodesh, and in the holy language. So there are two parts of a language. There's the script, which is written, and there's the speech, which is spoken. So we were given a Torah in Hebrew letters with Hebrew language. The Torah was given a second time to the Jewish people in the days of Ezra, Bichtav Ashurit, in Ashurit writing, Assyrian writing, Vlashon Arami in an Aramaic language. So initially, we received the Torah in Ktav Ivri, in the Hebrew text, along with the Hebrew language. In the days of Ezra, the Torah was given a second time to the Jewish people in the language of, in the writing of Ashurit, of Assyrian, and in the language of Aramit, of Aramaic. Biru lehen Israel, the Jewish people selected for themselves, Ktav Ashurit, the Assyrian font of the text, Vlashon Kodesh, and the Hebrew language. Vehenichu lehediotot, Ktav Ivrit Vlashon Arami. And they left the Ivrit script and the Aramaic language for the Hediotot. What are hediotot? Most likely the English word today, idiot, comes from this term. A hediot is a regular person for the common people. So according to this Gemara here in Masechet Sanhedrin, the Torah was given not just in the Hebrew language, but it was given with a Hebrew font, a ktav ivri, a script, a Hebrew script. That's a good word to use. And then again in the days of Ezra, the Torah was given a second time by Ezra, in an Assyrian script, Ashurit, along with Aramaic language. 
and our forefathers chose for themselves the Assyrian script and the Hebrew language. And they left Ktav Ivrit, the Hebrew script, and the Aramaic language for the commoners. Now this gives birth to a whole world of questions. And like I told you just a few minutes ago, that Chachmei Israel, from the time this Gemara was written until today, have been arguing back and forth as to the precise meaning of this transition of Torah script. What does it mean that the Torah was given to us in Hebrew script with Hebrew language? And then Ezra gave it to us in Assyrian script with Aramaic language. And then we came along and we chose the Assyrian font, the Assyrian script, along with the Hebrew language, and we left the Hebrew script and the Aramaic language for the commoners. Now, sometimes there are things that if we don't discuss them inside of the Jewish community, somebody else is going to come along and discuss them for us. If we don't teach our children about these things, other people will educate our children about these things first. If we don't educate our students about these things, other people will come along and educate our students. And instead of using this information the way Chachamim wanted it to be used, they'll use it to push all kinds of agendas. What do you mean you have a Torah that has never changed? Don't you know that your Talmud on page 11 here, in the PDF, your Talmud says that the Torah that we have in Ketav Ashurit, what is Ketav Ashurit? Where can you find today a Syrian font in the Jewish community? A Syrian script. Now where do you think? Everywhere. Everywhere. What is everywhere? What's written inside of the Sefer Torah, we refer to that as Ketav Ashurit. What we write in Hebrew, what you know, perhaps in English, they call it the block script of Hebrew, is a variant of a variation of Ketav Ashurit. All the Hebrew you're familiar with is Ketav Ashurit. The Sifrei Torah behind me are written not in Ketav Ivri, not in Hebrew script, in Ashurit, in Assyrian script. The Torah never changed? The Torah that we have is exactly the one Moshe Rabbeinu had? If you tell that to your children, what are you going to do when someone brings them this Gemara from Astechet Sanhedrin and tells them otherwise? What exactly this Agadah means, maybe we'll touch on in just a moment. Maybe we'll get there. But we first have to understand what is happening here, at least from the perspective of Israel. What is Israel Sofer trying to accomplish? Let's look on page 12. Man hediotot. Who are the hediotot, these commoners? Amar Rav Chizda. Rav Chizda said, Kutai. They're the Kutim. The Samaritans, the Shomronim, or the Shomarim. Who here was in my shiur today in the United Kingdom? I was. Today's entire shiur was about the Shomronim. So who has the original script of the Sefer Torah, seemingly, according to this Gemara? The Shomronim. The Samaritans that are sitting today around the city of Shechem. Umay k'tav ivrit, amar v'chizda, k'tav livona, the livona script. Has anyone here ever seen a Samaritan Sefer Torah? No. No. Halavai that I could Google it now and show it to you. It looks almost like a Sephardic Sevatoa, but it has three crowns on top of it. I don't know how else to explain it. The text inside is written in Ktav Ivri. Really, they'll call it already Samaritan text. If you look in the Google Classroom, I attached material into the classwork section called Ancient Hebrew Text or Script. 
and I put three files over there for you. One, two, and three, the first being the most important, which compares the different scripts that existed at this time in the world. And the Hebrew that you know to be Ktav Ashurit is drastically different than the Hebrew that Chachamim are referring to as Ktav Ivri. Chachamim are now going to do something fascinating. On page 12, Tanya Rabbi Yosef Omer, Tanya Rabbi Yosef says, Ra'ui haya Ezra shetinaten Torah al yadol Israel. It would have been proper for the Torah to be given to the Jewish people by Ezra. Meaning, Ezra was fitting. He was worthy of giving the Torah. He could have been Moshe Rabbeinu. If it wasn't for the fact that Moshe had come first. Our Chachamim compare Ezra to the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu. Ezra HaSofer should have been Moshe Rabbeinu. If Moshe had not come first, Ezra would have given us the Torah. On the bottom of page 12, Even though the Torah was not given by Ezra, At the very least, Ezra merited that the script of the Torah was changed by him. Like it says itself in the book of Ezra. If you look here in Sanhedrin 22a on page 13, and the writings of the letters was written in the Aramaic script and set forth in the Aramaic tongue. And our Chachamim ask in the next section on page 13, Lama Nikra Ashurit? Why is this script called Ashurit, Assyrian? Because it ascended with the Jewish people from Ashur when they returned from Galut Babel, when they returned back from their exile in Babylonia. Tell me one good reason why Ezra HaSofer would change the Jewish font the script of the words of the Sefer Torah to Assyrian writing. How does this fit in with the general theme of Ezra HaSofer? Any guesses? Very good. I think that's the answer. This is part of Ezra HaSofer's mission. The mission is to make Torah accessible to the masses. This is what he's trying to do. And therefore, even if it means changing the script of the Sefer Torah so that it can be accessible by the people of Israel, that is exactly what Ezra HaSofer is going to do. In fact, the book of Ezra talks all about how Ezra HaSofer ultimately meets those who are returning to Yerushalayim from Galut, and he discovers that the Torah that we have, that we had, that was written in Ktav Ivri, was almost unable to be understood by them. Want to read together the next Pesukim that I brought you from Nechayah? Let's read them in English in the interest of time. Nechayah writes, on the first day of the seventh month, you see on page 14, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the Torah before the congregation. Men and women and all who could listen with understanding. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from the first light until midday, to the men and the women and those who could understand. The ears of all the people were given to the scroll of the Torah. Ezra the scribe stood upon a wooden tower made for this purpose. And beside him stood... Okay. Ezra opened the scroll in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed Hashem, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with hands upraised. Then they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before Hashem with their faces to the ground. 
all of these people and the Leviim explained the Torah to the people while the people stood in their places. So they're explaining the Torah to people because they'd have never understood the Torah. They read from the scroll of the teaching of Hashem, Besefer Torah Elohim. Miforash, and they were explaining it as they went along. So they understood the reading. They were giving it meaning while they were reading it. By the way, I highly suggest, if you can, Chacham Fa'ur has an entire essay in the beginning of his horizontal society about Ktav and Mikhtav, there being a text and being a way in which that text is read. It's beyond the scope of today's conversation, but it's quite crucial to understanding the connection that the Jewish people, especially Chachmei Israel, have with Torah Moshe. If it was not for Ezra's translation of the text, if it was not for him changing the text of the Torah from Ktav Ivri to Ktav Ashurit, there was a chance the Jewish people would forget the Torah entirely. Let's talk a little more about that special script. This script of Ktav Ivri ultimately becomes the language which is used among the Jewish professionals, those who are the leaders of the Bet Mikdash, the Tamidei Chachamim, the Kohanim. I don't know if you've ever stuck your head in the realm of academia, for example. Now, I have an opinion that in academia, and no offense to all those people who are in academia, my wife included, I believe that there's a certain style to make yourself sound as smart as possible by speaking in the most cryptic and least understandable way possible. It's a certain type of arrogance that comes along with the field. It's an occupational hazard. You want to sound so important and so fancy. What can I say that we were raised differently? Our parents always taught us to speak, even when speaking Hebrew or speaking English, to speak a very simple English, a very simple Hebrew. Everyone should be able to understand what you're saying. Be able to explain things clearly. People shouldn't have to look up words in the dictionary that you use and they haven't looked at since their SATs. Doctors. There's a whole world of medical terminology. I'm a, a group of rabbis, doctors. Sometimes you can't even understand what they're saying. They speak their own language. It might be English, but it's their own language. Lawyers. You ever listen to lawyers, how they write things, they say things, they, they have their documents, legal paperwork, there's a way, there's just... It's mostly unaccessible for your average person who's trying to read these things. By the way, the Hebrew word for lawyer, how do you say a lawyer in Hebrew? Anybody? How do you say lawyer in Hebrew? What? Lawyer. How? What does Orech Din mean? Oh, okay. Orech Din, that's a lawyer. What does it mean? Something about judgment. Very good. So some... All the reasons to put them together as a case. So what does it mean, Orech? He's putting them down together. When you come to court, when you come to court, it's not enough to be right. It's not enough to be able to explain yourself in simple language to the judge. You need an orech din. You need somebody who knows how to write whatever your argument is in the right language. Who knows how to put it in the right type of words and papers and terminology. Who knows how to even to the point of how many paragraphs and how many sentences. When you wish to speak to the judge in the courtroom, you can't just raise your hand and say something. There's words you have to say. You want to object, you must say objection, you want Orche by the way, our Chachamim for a reason told us not to make ourselves like Orche They have something against lawyers. Not the stereotypes that people pick on lawyers. Lawyers who are good people and do their job in Emanut and they help people and they protect people, they do Avodat Kodesh. They're doing something righteous. I'm not talking about that. But it's the need to manipulate words, to arrange things properly, to present things in a certain way that's, that's ab above and beyond what is required in a normal conversation between two people, that makes it that when someone wants to represent themselves in court, they most likely will lose. 
unless they have tens and tens of thousands of dollars to invest in a lawyer who can speak for them, who can write for them, who will argue on their behalf, then the chances of them winning are slim to none. This is a problem. Am Yisrael had this exact problem. There was a hierarchy in language. There's a type of language which only certain people had access to. And his Sofer, whether that's correct or not, it's not important, his Sofer comes along and his whole attitude is that he is going to make sure that the language of Hebrew, the Torah of Hebrew, the law of Israel, Torah Elohim, the Torah of Hashem, is going to be accessible by everybody. Who's violating this code we mentioned last time in our shiur? Who's undermining the sufrim, the scribes, the kohanim? It's none other than Ezra himself. Ezra is undermining his own group of people in order to make the Torah accessible to everybody. It's attached to the Zoom invitation and the Google Classroom. Oh. It looks, scroll all the way to the bottom of the Zoom invitation, you'll find the PDF, we're on page 14. Okay. Now who else is bothered by this idea that the Torah that we have may not actually be the Torah that was given to Moshe Rabbeinu Hal Sinai? Anybody? Am I the only one? If I'm the only one, there's no reason for me to take a tangent about it. Very good. Okay, so I'm going to add Zev to the list of people who are bothered. Anybody else? Who are what? Who are bothered, are bothered by this uh, idea that the letters have changed. Always bothered, you know. So with your permission, I'll take a little tangent. Essentially, the language of Hebrew is the same. So, the Shona Kodesh is the Shona Kodesh. The Hebrew of Moshe Rabbeinu, the Torah, the Hebrew of Israel Sofer, it's the same Hebrew that the Torah is being written in. The question that we're having is particular, in particular about the script, the letters, the characters, which the Torah is written. Now, we're very familiar with this piece that we just read right now, which is all about Israel making the Torah more accessible to the people. Between you and me, this is a passage of Agadah. And this passage of Agadah can be contradicted by other passages of Agadah. So if this piece of Talmud, Masechet Sanhedrin, is telling us that originally Ezra HaSofer, the Torah was given to us by Moshe Rabbeinu in Hebrew script, and Ezra HaSofer changed it to Assyrian script, there is most definitely a second opinion in the Talmud. And I'll tell you as follows. The pin of the Talmud, Tanya, Rabbi Omer, Rabbi Uda Nasi says, Betchila b'chitav zenitna Torah l'Israel. Originally, the Torah was given in Ashurit writing. Kevan shechatu, and once the Jewish people sinned, nepach lehen neroetz, the Jewish people's, uh, the Hebrew was, the Hebrew script was taken away from the Jewish people. Kevan shechazru bahem, once they did teshuvah, hechziru lahem. Then the Hebrew script was returned to the Jewish people. So here's an interesting opinion of Rabbi Udanasi. 
which is no, we don't agree. We don't agree that Ezra came and changed the Hebrew script. Rather, what was the story? The Torah was given in Ketav Ashurit. And then the Jewish people sinned. And what happened? The Ketav Ashurit was taken away from them. And given Ketav Ivri. That became the common way to write. And then when they did Teshuvah, they got back their Ketav Ashurit. So here what's happening in the times of Ezra, perhaps, the Jewish people are being given back a script that is the original Jewish script. Now this doesn't really fit into what we said initially because these two opinions contradict each other. But ask a very good question. If this is true, the Torah was given initially in Ketav Ashurit, why do we call the original Hebrew Ashurit? Which means Assyrian. If that's the original Hebrew, it should be called Hebrew. No, why, why Assyrian? Says Rabbi Yudanasi, there's a different reason. So why do we call this particular script that we write the Sivrei Torah with Ashurit writing? It's a very special type of writing from the word Osher. This is a, a unique handwriting. It's a unique script. It has nothing to do with Assyrians. Ashurit doesn't mean Assyrian. According to this, the Torah was given initially in Ashurit. And, which is the best writing possible. Later on, it was replaced with an inferior Hebrew writing. And when the Jewish people did Teshuvah, it was given back to us in the original and beautiful Ashurit text. There's a third opinion. The third opinion of the Talmud, Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar Omer. Rabbi Shimon, the son of Elazar, says, who says the name of Rabbi Elazar? The Sefer Torah that we have, the text of it has never been changed. This is his opinion. And therefore, right now we find that there's a three-way argument in the Talmud. One that says the original font was Ivri. And then it was changed by Ezra to Ashurit. The second opinion says that it was written in Ashurit. It was changed to Ivri only temporarily. And then it came back to us in Ketav Ashurit. And that's what we have today. And the third opinion says that none of this happened. All of this is just Ketav Ashurit. What do you do when you have a three-way argument in Agadita? What formula do you use? when determining which piece of Agadah is correct. What's the difference between Agadah and Halakha? We've discussed this a hundred times in our Agadah class. Halakha is the law. Agadah has a lot of different interpretations of Very good. Very good. Why do we have to have so I agree with you, and this is exactly that. Agadah doesn't have a right or wrong per se. By the way, it could be that each of these are coming to teach this, uh, one side to the same story. Let's just give you an example, correct? Let's say that the script never changed, because that's what we always say, the script of the Torah never changed. One, that opinion's correct. The second opinion tells you so there is something to do with the holy language, the holy text of Ashurit, that there are times where Am Yisrael is more deserving of Ashurit than others. And that's why we even have in our tradition changes from Ashurit to Ivri, only because it tells you that this language is so holy that the Jewish people have to deserve the, the script which they use. And the first initial part of Ezra and the people is coming to teach you a lesson in accessibility of the Torah to the people. Not necessarily a lesson in history of exactly how it happened with the script of the Torah. Now some might call that an apologetic approach, uh, trying to unite all the different divides. Okay, so it could be that's not the way to read it. But we are not forced to accept one opinion over the other. In fact, if you look around the Talmud, there are other things that you've heard before that will directly contradict one or others of these opinions. So for example... For example, there's a famous teaching in Masagat Shabbat. It could be that Rashi mentions this in the Chumash also. I recall him uh, being taught this in, in, 
school when I was a child. Rabbanit, what does the Torah tell us when it says that Moshe Rabbeinu engraved the letters on the sefer, on the luchot, on the tablets, and they went all the way through? There was a miracle. I wouldn't remember what that miracle was. That the letters were suspended. Tell me what it means. Meaning, if I engrave a vav in, in the, through a rock, through and through, it's not suspended. What's suspended? No, but let's say a letter, a mem sofit, where it would require a middle. Very good. A mem sofit, which is like a square, let's say. Let's pretend. The square, that middle piece, what happens to it? It normally would fall out. The Gemara Masechet Shabbat tells us that the middle of the mem, in the middle of the samech, which is more round, that those middle pieces stayed suspended in there. They were floating in their place. Here's something interesting. I attached a chart for you of ancient Hebrew scripts. If you look in original Ktav Ivri, there is no such thing as a mem sofit. Because the sofit letters are all a part of Ktav Ashurit. In fact, in the Ashurik Tav, Mem and Samich are not letters that have any parts that need to be suspended in the first place. From here you see that according to this famous Midrash that is quoted about the Ten Commandments of the Mem and the Samich, According to this opinion, which language, which script did Moshe Rabbeinu use to give us the Torah and Har Sinai? Ivri writing or Ashuri writing? Definitely Ivri. No, definitely Ashurit. No, because you said in Ivri, it's where you have the letters suspended. Not no, where you don't have the letters suspended. There is no Mem Sofit in the Ivri. Only in Ashurit. And therefore, from this Midrash that our rabbis tell us in Masechet Shabbat, you learn that according to this opinion of Chachamim, the Torah was given by Moshe Rabbeinu on the Luchot in Ashurit writing. And what you have behind us now in the Sefer Torah is exactly what Moshe Rabbeinu gave us on Har Sinai. This validates one of those three opinions that we mentioned earlier. So Marlene, perhaps this is one way to do it which is to cross-reference other teachings of Chachamim and to say, do we find proof among other writings that there was a consensus among our rabbis? Very interestingly, you find in the Talmud Yerushalmi, Talmud Yerushalmi says the same exact midrash about the miracle of the suspended letters. Let me get you an exact source. The Talmud Yerushalmi Masechet Megillah writes, that which letter was the special letter that was suspended? It wasn't a mem, it was not a samech. It was the letter ayin. The letter ayin. The letter ayin is the one that was miraculously suspended in midair. Because in Ivri writing, the ayin is the one that has a middle that needs to be floating. And therefore, according to the Talmud Yerushalmi, it seems to be that their understanding was that the Torah was initially given in Ktav Ivri and only later changed to Ktav Ashurit. So you have the same Midrash in two different places, but both of them alluding to a different opinion of our rabbis regarding the original script of the Seva Torah, or the Luchot, that were given to Moshe Rabbeinu on Hal Sinai. Now what do you do with those things? I can't help you. The answer is I can't help you. The amount of Chachamim that have spent time writing and discussing and debating this topic. There's a book by Rabbi uh, Kasher, Rabbi Moshe Kasher. I think that was his name. Rabbi Menachem Mendel Kasher. I wrote it down here somewhere. I believe it's Rabbi Moshe. There's two. There's a father and there's a son. Okay. One of them. One's the, one is the father. He wrote a commentary in the Torah called Torah Shalema. And one of them is the son. wrote many books on Hasidut. He has an encyclopedia on the Torah. It's very hard to find. It's a very rare set to find, at least in its entirety. He started translating parts of it into English. I think they got through 11 volumes and stopped. But the Hebrew one is, is huge. Over there, he has a whole conversation regarding this topic about whether or not the Torah was given in Ashurit or Ivrit. And did it change with Israel? Did it not change with Israel? 
Suffice it to say, though, that there are halachic ramifications to this conversation. The Ridma tells us that because the Torah, you know, even though the Torah may have not been given in Ketav Ashurit, Ketav Ashurit is such a holy type of font, of script, that we are forbidden from using it to write anything mundane. It's only allowed to be used for the Sefer Torah. And he mentioned something fascinating, and that is that only the Sifrei Torah that we read in the Bede Knesset were allowed to be written in Ketav Ashurit. But if you were to write a Sefer Torah for people to study with in the synagogue, our days, Chumashim, you would not be allowed to write them in Ketav Ashurit because it's too holy to be used for mundane purposes. The Ramah in Yoredah, in Siman Reish Pei Dalet, 284, Halakha Bet. The Ramah mentioned something similar in the name of Rabbeinu Yerucham. Rabbeinu Yerucham wrote uh, his own code of Jewish law, which is very difficult to come by uh, for all kinds of superstitious reasons as well. But really they're all referring back to a Rambam. The Rambam, in his Shalot V'Tshuvot, the Rambam writes the following, that Ashurit is the language in which the Torah was given. The script, the Torah was given an Ashurit script in Hebrew language. And he writes, And what you need to know? Because this font, meaning which font? Ashurit. Because the Torah was given in this script, like it's been explained, and the Ten Commandments, the Luchot, were written in Ashurit script. It's very, very degrading to use this. It's an act of defilement, of disgrace, to use the Ashurit script for anything aside from the Torah and the Kitvei HaKodesh. And the Rambam said, what? Oh, very good. So everything that's a mitzvah, perhaps, meaning that we need to use, like the tefillin, mezuzot, sifri, Torah. The Rambam's going to go on and explain something fascinating to us, and that is exactly why, says the Rambam, Lo pasku The Jewish people have always been particular about this halakha. V'hayu igrotehem v'chiburei chachmotehem v'kidvei chol shalehem b'chtav ivri levad. If you look at the writings of Chachmei Yisrael, when they wrote letters to each other, they wrote mundane matters, books of accounting, whatever they did, they wrote in Ketav Ivri. L'chen timtza charut tamid an shiklei hakodesh dvarim shel chol b'chtav ivri. And that's why you'll find in the Jewish shkalim, on the Jewish coins, which I attached a picture of, it's the third image in the Google Classroom you'll find that it's not written in Ketav Ashuri, it's written in Ketav Ivri, because it's a mundane thing to write in a coin. And that's why, says the Rambam, that in archaeology, things that you find, that you dig up, whether it's stone or it's metals, coins, Says the Rambam, as long as they're mundane, you're always going to find that they were written in Ketav Ivri, not in Ketav Ashuri. Because the Jewish people were always careful to protect the sanctity of the script. For this reason, says the Rambam, Shinu ha-sefaradim ketavam. The Sefaradim changed their handwriting. V'natnu la-otiyot surot acherot. And they made a different script with which to write Hebrew. Ad shenasa ki'ilu ketav acher. If you look at Sephardic, traditional Sephardic Hebrew, it looks like a completely different language. And the reason, says the Rambam, that we Sephardim wrote our Hebrew in a different script is in order for us to be able to use it for mundane matters as well as holy matters. It's now a different, it's Hebrew, but it's a different script. And therefore we don't run into the problems of Ketav Ashurit, of using this holy script for mundane matters. Has, I didn't attach a picture, but has anyone ever seen Sephardic handwritten script? It's called Chatsi Kulmus. There's a word for it in English. It's not in English, but they, they call it. It's called um, 
I don't remember off the top of my head. I will find it. I will post it to the Google Classroom. By the way, Ashkenazim also developed their own font. The script that we write today, if you're familiar, there's Hebrew block script and Hebrew script script. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where the Aleph is like that, and the, the Bet, and the Gimel, and all those things. That script is an Ashkenazi script to be able to do the same thing, accomplish the same thing. By the way, it's very interesting history. Why in the founding of the State of Israel, even though Sephardic letters, for the most part, were chosen, and Sephardic pronunciation, for the most part, was chosen, why the Israelis insisted on using Ashkenazi handwritten script instead of the Sephardic handwritten script? And part of that has to do with politics, like everything else, which is beyond the scope of today's conversation. This leads to many, many Chachamim being very careful about writing things. For example, there are those in Israel, you'll get a wedding invitation, and it will be written in Rashi script, or some other script, because they don't want to write something in Ashurit script. It's not correct. But this leads to a major problem in a country like the State of Israel. What do you do when the newspaper is written in Ashurit script? What do you do? Forget the newspaper. What do you do when the package of the toilet paper, you, you bring the toilet paper. Are you allowed to bring the toilet paper into the bathroom if it says Niyar uh, Toilet in Hebrew on it? In Ashurit script? What about the plunger with a sticker on it that says whatever it says, Pompa? It's, a, it's in Hebrew. Are you allowed to put it in the toilet? This leads to a complicated situation. And among the poskim, there are those who believe that so long as it's not written with all the particular nuances of the Torah script, it's just a block script that it's not holy in and of itself. From Chacham Ovadi Yosef to Moshe Feinstein to many other poskim of our generation, they, they pretty much push to that direction because we'd have no choice. We'd have no way to function, at least in a modern Israel, that is chosen to use block script all over the place and to be able to follow halakha properly. Very interestingly, this has a ramification in one other place in halakha. And that is the question about ketubot and gitin. Marriage and divorce contracts. Are they allowed to be written in Kitab Ashurit or not? And the real question surrounds whether the Ketubah or the Get is just a legal contract or is it a mitzvah contract? And because it's a mitzvah contract, you're allowed to use Kitab Ashurit versus if it is just a, a, a legal contract, in which case you might not be able to. The Minhag seems to be in Maran, even though in the Beit Yosef, Maran quotes an opinion saying that you should not write gitin in Ashurit writing. Nonetheless, Maran writes in Shulchan Aruch that the minhag has become to allow such a thing to happen. And really that's something you see all over the place of uh, ketubot and gitin and everything else being written exactly the way that you would write a sevot Torah. With your permission, I wish to finish this topic tonight. Do you let me just do two more takanot of Ezra so that we can wrap this topic up and next week discuss something else? Yeah, okay, wonderful. I hope I answered at least some of the questions that may have come up regarding Ashurit writing and Ivri writing and the original Torah, what it looked like. Obviously, this is a, still a conversation among our Chachamim, but there are many, many Chachamim who are inclined to say the Torah itself was always written in Ashurit, and that these teachings have their own agadic value. Let's look at the next source. On page 14. Our rabbis tell us on Masechet Pesachim, that sofrim who charge money, scribes who charge money, don't see any blessing from that money. Amar Rabbi Yushua ben Navi, the bottom page 14, or the top of page 15, if you're using the English. Rabbi Yushua ben Navi says, Esrim ve'arba ta'aniyot yeshvu anshei knesset ha'gedona al kotvei sefarim, tefilin u'mezuzot shlo yitashru. Our rabbis, the men of the great assembly, fasted 24 fast days. In order so that those who write Sifrei Torah, Tefillin, and Mezuzot will not become wealthy. 
before we go on anywhere, do you see the Chodvei Sifrei Tefillin Umezuzot? That stands for Stam. When you hear someone that Sofer Stam, it's a Sefer Torah Tefillin Umezuzot. That's where the Stam comes from. Sofer Stam means that it's a Sofer who writes these three things. Our rabbis, the Anshei Knesset Dona, fasted for 24 days so that those who are Sofrim should not become wealthy. Because if they become wealthy, and Kodvin, they would cease writing Sifrei Torah and Tivinin and Mezuzot. It's a very unique teaching. What interest do the Anshei Knesset Dona have that the Sofrim shouldn't get wealthy so that they shouldn't write. The people should be worried about the Sofrim getting wealthy. The people should worry that the Sofrim will get wealthy and not provide them the products they need. Why are the Ansheikh Nestad Dona fasting so the Sofrim do not get wealthy? And here perhaps is a beautiful insight. And that is that who made the Sofrim have business again in the first place? Who is the inspiration for the Jewish people and mass to go buy Sifrei Torah and study Sifrei Torah? Who inspired that? The Anshei Knesset Hagadona, by making the Torah accessible, now turned the Torah into a commodity that people want. And what happens is that now there's demand. And our Chachamim are worried that when there's demand, there begins to be shortages. And our Chachamim, who made this demand for Torah happen, also view it as their personal responsibility to make sure that even though the Sofrim need to be writing and they should be able to make money, that they shouldn't really make enough money. That way they'll continue providing Am Yisrael with Sifrei Torah and to a lesser extent Tefillin and Mezuzot. So this is part of the Anshnei Kezak Dola taking care of Am Yisrael and making sure that the Sofrim don't become too wealthy or too lazy and they continue to put out Sifrei Torah for the Jewish people again to have access. Each household, each person should have access to their own Jewish books to be able to study Torah on their own. There's one last teaching for tonight. And that has to do with the sad state of Jewish observance in the generation of Ezra and Nehemiah. Let's look at the middle of page 15. Tanur Banan. Our rabbis taught. Initially, they would say that only three utensils may be moved on Shabbat. A knife for cutting a cake of dried figs. Anyone know what a cake of dried figs is? Zev, I can't hear you. You can buy them in like... Uh... Asian markets, you can buy them at Whole Foods, they cut, it's like they press the figs together into a solid cake, and then you cut slices of it. Very good, that's, that's exactly that. Am used to do that too. So this knife that you use to cut the cake of dried figs is allowed to be used on Shabbat. What else? Uh, interesting. According to the Geonim, this is a, a spork. It's the original spork. The spoon and a fork together. V'sakin k'tana shal gabei shulchan. And the small table knife, you know, the kind of knife you keep around the table to cut things. Those items are allowed to be used because they're, they have a purpose to be used on Shabbat, a permissible purpose. Use them to eat, use them for food, and because of that, you're allowed to use them on Shabbat. But as Chachamim observed that Am Yisrael were observing Torah and being more particular about halacha, Hitiru, they permitted more things. V'chazru v'hitiru, and again the rabbis began permitting more things. V'chazru v'hitiru, and the rabbis began permitting more things on Shabbat. Ad sh'amru, until our rabbis teach us, kol ha-kelim nitalin b'Shabbat, you can use any utensils you want on Shabbat, chutz min masar ha-gadol v'yated shun macharesha, aside from the large saw and the blade of a plow. Before I tell you what actually happened in the story, do you see something amazing here? Our rabbis see that there's a problem of observance in the Jewish people. So they make a decree. They make a fence for the Torah. You can't touch any utensils except for these three. 
And as they see the Jewish people becoming more careful and more observant, our rabbis start peeling away those layers. Well, if you're already observant, you don't have to worry about all the offenses. If you're already particular about halakha, you don't have to worry about all of these extra levels that we added. It's the exact opposite of how we understand. This is the flip side of asusiyag la Torah, make offense for the Torah. Meaning, make offense for the Torah with people who would violate the Torah. But those who are anyways observant of the Torah and care about the Torah, then slowly peel back the layers for them. It should become easier the more observant you are. Not harder the more observant you are. This is the exact opposite of anything that we see in the Jewish world today. I once had a situation, I'm not going to tell you how the say. I once had a situation, I was living in Israel, I had a student, went to a hotel, whatever happened, happened, he went to the hotel with his wife, it turns out that they needed two beds instead of one bed, but the hotel didn't have, there was really not a situation where they could sleep on the floor, whatever, I'm speaking in hints here, I, I want to, so what should they do? Well, whatever happened, happened, but I went to have this conversation with the parents. And Rappel's attitude was the following. Was he a Tamil Chacham? What difference does it make? I said, if he's a Tamil Chacham, you can trust him more to be careful to even share a bed using separate blankets and separate clothing and staying far apart from each other. But a person who doesn't have that kind of control, then that's where you're worried. Now, this wasn't a halakha lamaseh, so nobody should walk away from here saying, oh, well, if I'm a tamir chacham, I can do whatever I want. That was not the point of this. But rather, that we understand that those who are truly particular about halakha, we don't have to worry about so many of the fences that other people need to keep their observance in order. It's exactly what happens here in this generation. Halavayan chachamei Israel, that they would review this part of Talmud and understand exactly how this should apply in our generation as well. Amari Bichanina. Yeah? I would rather assess uh, his uh, relaxing some of the laws of Shkita in Morocco apply here. Because it seemed like he was making it easier because people were having a difficult time following this more stringent views on slaughtering of animals and blood adhesions and the like. Very good. So I think that over there it's a slightly different scenario. That's a good point because it does sound slightly contradictory here. Over there you're dealing with a different thing. Over there you're dealing with two approaches to halakha. The stricter one which became the standard. And he sees that the people are not living up to the stricter standard. Here there's a certain attitude, especially among Sephardic poskim, especially, which is that we would rather that people should follow a more lenient opinion but still view themselves as observant of halakha as opposed to them violating the norm that is halakha and always feeling like they anyways don't keep kosher, so they might as well do X, Y, and Z. There's, it's, it might sound strange, but not catering to the lowest common denominator, but in times where you know, these are measures that need to be called for, to say, yeah, we would love the communal standard to be here, but this is still okay. And if we go here, the chances of keeping all these Jews in the fold of Shemirat Kashut is the value. And, and as rabbis who had authority over communities, meaning they had the autonomy to do what they felt was correct, the community respected their opinions and listened to their rabbinic rulings, Rabbi Yosef Masas was in a unique position to do such things. Today you would be called either a reform rabbi or a rabbi Or both. That's right. That's right. But the thing is, is that what that leads to if you keep a very high, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't call it high, but a very stringent standard with a lot of humorous is that you get a lot of black market activity. You have people doing things secretly, but looking on the surface like they're being ultra-observant. Remember, that, remember that, that game back in the day where you like bop the mole, you bop it here and it pops up over there, and you bop it here and it pops up over there? So there's a Judaism like that also. When you, when you push back water pressure, water pressure is not stopped, it's simply channeled somewhere else. So you'll find that whatever you're blocking here, it's coming out over there. You might not see it, so then you're happy because ignorance is bliss. But a leader is somebody who really sees everything. They see through layers of society. And they realize that by doing this, they're, they're enabling that negative behavior. So which is better? Is it better to have a standard here that is not required? Or to make sure that people are actually all across the board doing what's right? 
But we're so far away from models of leadership like this, at least on a mass scale. I'm not talking about individual communities and people, but on a mass scale. You know, Rav Kook once mentioned this in his wars with the ultra-Orthodox community in Jerusalem. He boiled it down to, the, the rabbis of his generation told him that, that the people of the communities no longer trust the rabbis. And Rav Kook's attitude was, the people don't trust the rabbis because the rabbis don't trust the people. And the people know that. The people know that the rabbis don't trust them. That everything they can, they'll tell them no. They don't believe that if it's okay, the rabbi will tell them it's okay. This corrosion of trust between leadership and community is exactly what causes for all the problems that we're dealing with right now. And Rav Kook's belief was, and they were fighting about sesame oil in that particular case, and whether it was permissible for Pesach or not. Rav Kook's opinion was that it was, and that the other rabbis were telling them, but it's a slippery slope. If you allow sesame oil, then you know who knows what they're going to do. And Rav Kook says that part of restoring the Jewish people back to the Jewish homeland is the ability to restore the faith of the Jewish people and the leadership, and the faith of the leadership in the Jewish people. And unless you're willing to make the bold moves and make that happen, we're going to lead to a worse type of Judaism than we've ever seen before. And I think that, unfortunately, that I wish that not all prophecies came true, but that prophecy most definitely came true, unfortunately. Let me just wrap this up here. Amar Rabbi Hanina. Rabbi Hanina writes, the bottom of page 15. Bimei Nechemya ben Chachalia. In the days of Nechemya, Nishnet Mishnah Zo. This Mishnah was taught in the days of Nehemiah. As Nehemiah writes himself, in those days, I saw in Yehuda some treading wine presses on Shabbat and bringing in heaps of grain. Let's read it in English because they have the whole Pasuk here. And lading donkeys with them, as also wine, grapes, figs, and all manner of burdens which are brought into Jerusalem on the Shabbat day. I forewarned them on that day when they sold food. Nehemiah says, I'm looking at the Jewish people, and in my face, I'm a Navi, in my face. The Jewish people are busy working on Shabbat. They're selling things, they're working in the fields, they're, all kinds of things they're doing. And so this is when it happens. The Nehemiah, who by the way didn't really believe in a democracy, Nehemiah sees there's a problem. Nehemiah sees that Shabbat observance is at an all-time low. And he decides to swoop in and says, what's the main transgression of Shabbat in my generation? People are working in the fields. People are using utensils. I will make a law that on Shabbat it's forbidden to use any type of utensil, with three exceptions. The table knife, the knife that cuts the figs, only very few things. And as the generations move forward, and Chachmei Israel saw that it's no longer a problem, the Jewish people who observe Shabbat are truly observing Shabbat more and more things were permissible to handle on Shabbat until the final uh, verse which says that really the only thing that we needed to be careful of are actual work tools like a large saw or the uh, plow or things like that but your average utensils nobody's using them for forbidden purposes and this is exactly like I mentioned it's the flip side of place a protective fence around the Torah when you see the fence is no longer needed you're allowed to take off Certain fences, not you and me, but leaders of Am Yisrael, those who were given the reins to make these kind of decisions. Next Monday, Bezat Hashem, we're going to discuss one last piece. And that is because we're now going to delve for the next few weeks into the lives of many different sages, Tanaim and Moraim, who wrote the Mishnah and they wrote the Talmud, not just on Sheikh Nesagadullah, but to truly comprehend the shift, the transition between the period of prophecy in the period of our sages, why that was important, what our rabbis viewed about the transition, what does it mean for the Jewish people, what hope do we have for the Jewish future. Until then, Bezat Hashem, I hope and I pray for us to be able to restore a type of, in our community, in our kihilah, which I believe we've done a terrific job about it, to be able to restore a type of Judaism that looks forward, a type of Judaism that is firmly rooted in actual, authentic Jewish sources. The same Torah that was given to Moshe Rabbeinu and Sinai is the same Torah that is sacred for us, while still making the Torah accessible to as many people as possible. Our mission statement should be that of Nanshei Knesset HaGadolah, to look at three things, HaKadosh Baruch the Torah, and the Jewish people, and not to ignore any one of those three parts. <coughs> and ultimately, to be able to create a type of Judaism, which allows for trust between people, trust between leaders and communities, trust between all of Am Yisrael to be able to march forward into a Jewish future where we can do things together.
we can turn back the tide together. And maybe perhaps this last return of Am Yisrael to the land of Israel will not be for vain, will not be Ezra and Nechemiah's generation. It will be the generation of the Geulah of Mashiach Tzedkenu. We should merit to see that day come to us very, very soon. Bezad Hashem